Hello, and welcome to America and Democracy from the MIT Press Podcast. My name is Sam Kelly, and in this series of interviews, I'll be asking authors to reflect on some of the reasons why American politics is the way it is, as we approach the election on November 3rd. I'll be speaking to authors about a variety of subjects, from corruption and science denial to McCarthyism and Martin Luther King, all with the hopes of understanding how best to advocate for and expand democracy in America. In the previous episode, I spoke to Robert Rotberg about corruption, and in this episode, I was speaking to Jonathan Berman about his book, Anti-Vaxxers. Jonathan is Assistant Professor in the Department of Basic Sciences at NYITCOM, Arkansas. He's also an active science communicator who served as National Co-Chair of the 2017 March for Science. The COVID-19 pandemic has acted like a lightning rod for the long-standing issues of science illiteracy and misinformation. Not only do the current leaders of countries like the US, the UK and Brazil blatantly undermine scientific consensus, many ordinary and well-meaning people find themselves ill-equipped to make informed decisions about things like vaccinations in a media landscape riddled with misinformation. In this episode, I'll be asking Jonathan about his book and some of the possible antidotes to these challenges. I wanted to talk to you because... Um, I think your books, it's obviously very relevant to the peculiar circumstances of COVID-19 and the kind of COVID denialism that's shaping the kind of current political process. But also, uh, in a broader sense, uh, I think your book speaks to issues like climate denialism, the kind of manufacturing of doubt in political discourse, uh, and just generally the difficulties in having difficult discussions with people who don't share the same opinion. So I thought to start off with, could you tell listeners a little bit about your background as a scientist and a communicator uh, as well as a, an organizer? Okay. So I was, uh, I graduated my PhD in, in 2015. I'm not a vaccinologist. I'm a renal physiologist. So I study ion channels in the kidney and how that how that relates to hypertension. So how the the sodium that ends up in our blood ends up being reabsorbed once ends up in urine. And that seems that might seem sort of like a different field than than vaccines. But I've always been very interested in the sort of the fringy elements of science where people take up positions that seem to go against what scientists believe are true. Um, in 2017, I was one of the people who organized the March for Science, which was a big science communication event, I guess is what it became, where we tried to make the argument that the that the governments of the world and in the United States and elsewhere should take scientists' conclusions, should take evidence into account when making decisions. And this was right after... Scott Pruitt had been appointed to the EPA here and a number of decisions that were being made that appeared to be uh, intended to undermine science being done by government employees. And in the process of working on that, I would keep encountering people who would say things like, well, climate change is real. You have to listen to the evidence. It's important to be on top of this climate, climate change. And then in the next breath, they would say, things that were right out of the anti-vaccine, anti-vaxxer 
movement. And it, was, it seemed like a really fascinating contradiction to me that people who, who would identify themselves as science communicators uh, or as scientists would hold opinions that were apparently anti-science or science denialist. So that's sort of how I got started thinking about uh, anti-vaxxers. Um, well, I, really, I've been sort of following the story of anti-vaxxers for a long time, and that's how I sort of got started building notes and thoughts for what became the book. And was there a kind of specific experience or conversation or relationship you had with someone where you thought this is something that really needs addressing when you decided you wanted to write a book about it? Or was it more a kind of accumulation? Well, I didn't want to make it about any particular person um, just because, well, it's not fair because they're not there to defend themselves. And because usually any one person isn't a big enough deal to be worth addressing at length. Because a lot of these ideas are ideas that a lot of people hold. So wouldn't it be better to address the movement as a whole than just this one person? You say that they're held by a lot of people. Um, before we go into the details of the kind of anti-vaxxer worldview, could you talk a little bit about how popular these beliefs are? How widespread do you think they are, specifically in America? So the majority of people do vaccinate. And that's you know, of the, the vaccines that people are supposed to get in the United States, vaccine coverage is actually very good, um, depending on the vaccine in the range of 85 to 95 percent. And those vaccines are by and large safe and by and large effective. And even though people have doubts about the effectiveness of those vaccines, they still get. So when you ask the question, are people hesitating about vaccines, you get actually a very high number you get something like 30 to 40% of people are hesitant. They have questions about the safety of vaccines. So to that extent, anti-vaxxers have been successful in sort of sowing doubt. However, when you look at who is an actual dedicated anti-vaxxer who would say, well, I would never be vaccinated, I would never have my child vaccinated, that number tends to be um, quite a bit smaller. I would think only really dedicated a few thousand people. Uh, if you look at you know, some of the uh, rallies and things where people would go to in California all across the state, and you would seem like, oh, there's hundreds of people at these rallies, but you know, people who, who followed them and, and looked at the pictures would notice, oh, it's the same hundreds of people who would drive to each of these rallies. So the actual dedicated people uh, not that many. Yeah. And you do, you differentiate between that in the book, don't you? Between kind of very active anti-vax activists and people who are just hesitant. Could you talk a bit about, I mean, obviously they're going to differ from person to person, but could you talk about some of the foundations of the anti-vaxxer worldview? What are they in opposition to? Why are they in opposition to it? You know, what are they in favor of? Just the kind of general insight into what these beliefs tend to encompass. Sure. So, just like there isn't one thing that's vaccines, you know, vaccines are a lot of different treatment. There are a few different ways people come to being anti-vaxxers. But the underlying theme, I think, seems to be fears about personal control. So people will react to, react to the government saying you have to do this negatively because they have fears about government intrusion and government control. They'll react negatively to physicians saying you have to do this because 
um, they see that physician is taking control away from them. And when you see things like children being sick or mortality of children, it's very frightening. So part of what's happening is people react to that fear. And they're trying to do the best thing they can because as parents, they have this set of choices they come to of, you know, what kind of parent am I going to be? And for certain choices, it's okay to have different approaches. Uh, some parents will have do attachment parenting or some parents will breastfeed or bottle feed and, and, and lots of different ways of doing things. But when it comes to vaccination, they also see that as a kind of parenting choice. And so depending on who's around them and who's giving them information, they might trust the information they get from their neighbor or from their friends who they they talk to and they interact with all the time, more so than some physician they only see once a year or have never even seen before. So I, I think the, the pathway to it is exploiting these sort of universal fears that almost everyone has and depends on people people's social networks and interpersonal relationships being more trusted sources of news and information than the kinds of news and information that I would think are are more trustworthy, what the consensus of a scientific field is, for example. The book kind of has that quality to it. There's a quote that I've got up here uh, where you say that there's an inherent tension in seeking to understand the movement while simultaneously refuting its claims. Uh, and I think that's a really good quality to the way you've presented the arguments in the book. And we could kind of get on a little bit later to why you take that attitude or why it's important to have that attitude in these conversations. But before we do, I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and talk about how, you know, how are people introduced to these ideas and also how do they then become very entrenched in them? Yeah, so I think the majority of people encounter these ideas in early parenthood. Um, so they will go and they might have heard something from a friend that was negative about vaccines or seen some Facebook post or something. Uh, and then when they go seek out information, they'll, they'll use Google or they'll go on Amazon. And these tools don't make good distinction between what's good information to present to you, scientific information, or versus what's something someone just made up. So if you do a, an Amazon search for vaccines, you don't get the science books first. You get the anti-vaccine books first. And so um, people will search out information. They'll get information and they will read quite a lot. Um, the problem is not absence of information. It's, it's abundance of incorrect information and poor sorting of information. So then people tend to join these sort of online communities um, on Twitter or Facebook groups. And one of the, the benefits and curses of social media is that you can set things up so you never really have to encounter someone who's going to challenge your ideas. Uh, if you're in a Facebook group, you can block or ban anyone who doesn't agree with the premise of the Facebook group. If you're on Twitter... You can block people who challenge you. So there's this uh, idea from social psychology called escalation of commitment, where people will become more and more committed to these courses of action that are detrimental or false, um, even if they have that information that these are detrimental courses of action, because the, the people in the group are supporting that, or partially because people in the group are supporting that. There's another idea called 
group polarization. So when you're in one of those groups, um, the group discourse tends to become more extreme over time because, uh, well, the more moderate people get driven out, for one. Um, and then people sort of seek status in the group by saying things that are sort of indicative of their membership in the group. And those become more and more rote and more extreme over time. So people will even invent stories um, a very common theme is someone telling this same story that happened to probably almost no one of having their child vaccinated, and then immediately they start, they develop a fever and then seizures. And I think what's happening is that people are telling that story because it indicates their membership in that group. Before they know it, they've sort of they sort of become radicalized into a belief system that's tied really closely into. Um, how they see themselves in relationship to uh, other people who are in the same identity group. One thing I found really interesting as well that I think speaks to broader questions of how you, how we frame debate in public discourse was the kind of the misguided attachment to the idea of balanced coverage when it comes to things like information on vaccinations or you know, you see it with discussions about climate change or, or even now discussions about things like the far right, where the idea of having balanced coverage where you have someone from quote unquote both sides of the argument ends up lending a, a sort of false sense of seriousness to the opposition side. And I was wondering if you could speak about that a little bit and maybe some of the other reasons why misinformation travels so quickly in media as opposed to information information. <laughs> yeah, one of the, I guess I would call it a virtue of journal of good journalism that people um, have adopted is balance. So if one person is giving their opinion on something, Usually someone with an opposing opinion is given the opportunity to present their view. And I think that's a good thing if you're talking about something like a land dispute where there may be two different sides or um, like a dispute with a company where the company says one thing and then someone else says something else. Company says, I didn't pollute. And then someone else says, you did pollute. Then you want to present both parts of that argument or if a politician makes a claim, and then um, someone running against them wants to make a counterclaim, then balance can be good because it lets you hear multiple opinions and then decide for yourself. But where balance becomes a problem is where it's used with something where there isn't an equality in the nature of evidence for something. So if you try to balance information, uh, someone speaking about vaccines or climate change revolution, with someone taking a contrarian approach, that sort of lends credibility to fringe ideas as if they were equal, when in reality, certain ideas are based more on evidence and the work of scholars and scientists that's, that's much, much larger. So if you then give one minute of time to the scientists and then one minute of time to the person you pulled off the street who can is going to claim that evolution isn't real, then you've sort of elevated the the weaker position to appear to have equal strength or to the scientific opinion or, or made them both appear to be to be of equal weight or both to appear to be opinions when one is an opinion and one is uh, a strong scientific 
conclusion based on mountains of evidence. As regard to the the flow of misinformation, so that's something that that's been studied a lot recently, and it's true that uh, when when people share news stories online, a true news story gets shared less than a fake news story. And the fake news story will travel faster, it'll reach more people. So some of maybe the reasons for that, it's possible that what's happening is that the fake news story is novel because, well, they've already checked the news for that day. They go on social media to find the things they can't find on the news. And one of them is the fake news story. The fake news story might be more interesting. It might give people the sense that they are sort of extracting secret information that um, some shadowy conspiracy doesn't want them to know. So they're, they're more apt to click share if something is fake. And really what we want to be doing is when we see something that upsets us online or makes us question the reality of something we used to believe or something, we, we kind of need to do a little bit of further reading, find trusted sources or secondary sources or or other ways of verifying uh, information because a lot of there are a lot of people online who benefit from you believing something that isn't true um, or they want you to believe something that isn't true and they may not have compunctions about lying or inventing misinformation or may not have good means of generating information and they will share that information. And if you then run into it, if you don't sort of defend yourself and protect yourself from it, then you can easily fall into one of these, I guess you would call them rabbit holes of misinformation. Talking of rabbit holes and misinformation and, and people that get very entrenched in these ideas, uh, in the book, you outline three strategies that are sort of commonly used when people engage in a dialogue with people that hold anti-vaccination beliefs. Could you outline those three strategies and where they fail, where they succeed, and and which you think is the the preferable tactic? Sure. So I see people doing um, a few different things when they're addressing anti-vaxxers. And the first is what's been called the information deficit model. And so this is a model where I know things you don't, and I'm going to talk at you until you learn them. So this is also kind of more like the lecture model in a university where I'm going to talk and you're going to listen and somehow that will transfer information to you. To some degree, there are, there are times when I think that can work. Um, if someone doesn't have information and they go to a reliable source and they seek it out, then they will learn from it. Uh, so that's the information deficit model working. But where it doesn't seem to work is with uh, addressing sort of these topics of science denial, climate change, vaccines, uh, and so on, where people will um, seek out new information, but just correcting their misunderstanding isn't enough because their misunderstanding isn't they don't have enough information. Their misunderstanding is they have the wrong information or they've used a kind of motivated reasoning to arrive at their conclusions that just addressing that each individual concern that they state isn't likely to solve the problem. So there's a place for, for this model, uh, and but you know it's not always going to be effective. Another, uh, I think I've seen, um, why well, I called it reactive in the book, is where you, and this is the most fun, but, but I think the least effective 
which is just sort of arguing with people uh, on social media or in person or antagonizing people. Uh, so this is sort of going out of your way to find anti-vaxxers and then you online and then you quote tweet them or screenshot them and share them or, or whatever and just make fun of them and call them stupid. And one of the reasons that this seems to not be effective is backfire effects. Uh, so it's it's still debated whether or not there's an actual backfire, but being presented with new information doesn't necessarily change people's beliefs. And being called stupid doesn't necessarily change people's beliefs. So the strategy that I recommend in the book is one where you you look in, you take into account people's community and identity, and you use that information to craft a strategy for how best to reach them. The example I, I gave is 2016, there was a measles outbreak in the Somali American community um, in Minnesota. And in, in order to address that, public health officials started working with imams because this was a primarily Muslim community. And they worked with them to come into mosques and give demonstrations and talks and communicate with people. And the religious leaders were, were willing to help. And the vaccination rate recovered to higher than it was before there was a drop in that community. So that sort of demonstrates um, one way of, of doing a community-based approach of understanding who the people you're talking to are and what they value and and trying to um, model the behavior you hope they adopt with, with people who are members and leaders in that community. How do you sort of see the conversations in that community setting uh, unfolding? Because some people, no matter how sort of gently or kindly you speak to them, they just don't want to know about it. How do you think people should go about having those conversations? Yeah, so some people, you're just never going to change their mind. And I think based on the title, some people are thinking that there's going to be a magic formula you use that you you talk to someone and you you jump up and down three times and you say some magic words and their mind is changed. And it doesn't really work like that. Um, some people are just really stuck in their views. And if you spend forever trying to change their mind, you're probably going to frustrate yourself, frustrate them, and, and maybe not make a lot of progress. So I think, first of all, it's it's picking a good audience, picking receptive people. I think you'll have more more chances with people who are sort of vaccine hesitant rather than anti-vaxxers. But that vaccine hesitancy that's wider than anti-vaccinationism is ultimately the bigger problem. So I think you want to to start a conversation by figuring out why people believe what they believe and actually listening to them. So instead of just telling them what's true, say, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? What kind of evidence would change your mind? And then having a, a two-way conversation where you learn about their beliefs, how they arrived at them, and then responding with why you believe what you believe and how you arrived at that set of beliefs. And at the community level, there have been some successful vaccination campaigns based on just messaging that involves members of the, that community. So, you know, people who who sort of give off the signals that I'm a member of your group. And other approaches have been effective as well. So there are there have been effect some effectivity demonstrated in things like 
uh, presenting fact sheets um, and information and in better training for physicians for how to have these kinds of conversations or simply letting physicians know that you, know, you don't have to treat this family. You can refer them to someone else uh, if they refuse to follow the rules of your practice and things like that. But I, I think the most important thing thing that people should be doing is having this conversation with friends and, and sort of modeling good behavior. You know, showing off when you get your flu shot, you know, just post a picture on social media. Or if you have your kids are getting their vaccines, you know, write something about it and 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 show that you know, the the community that you're a part of is a pro-vaccination, pro-science community. Um, and, and be demonstrative about that. And that, I think, is very helpful. Mm. Okay, great. Um, I also wanted to ask you about whether or not the kind of anti-vaxxer sensibility is the, a result of a sort of healthy suspicion being kind of misdirected. And I suppose what I mean by that is, you know, for example, like a few, a few years ago, if you thought the government uh, was spying on you all the time, you might be considered a kind of, you know, conspiracy theorist, tinfoil hat wearing, yada, yada. But actually, with sort of good journalism, we kind of realise that that, to a large degree, is quite true. Private corporations, the government, are recording huge amounts of data. So, for example, in the anti-vaxxer context, sort of a suspicion of things like Big Pharma, I actually am quite sympathetic to, and I think it's quite helpful to. Do you think there's a, a way you can kind of redirect those suspicions or those criticisms in a more productive way? Yeah, so... I think one of the, the common criticisms from anti-vaxxers is of the pharmaceutical industry. And when we address that, then the, the instinct is to then defend the pharmaceutical industry and say, well, they're not doing X, they're not doing Y, or whatever. But at the same time, the pharmaceutical industry actually does a lot of bad in addition to whatever good it does by producing life-saving drugs. It also raises prices to incredibly high levels that, that perhaps are not justified. It it does intense lobbying um, to reduce regulations and so forth. So I think we do need to be honest about the fact that that occurs and that trusting vaccines is about more trusting and understanding the process used for the approval of vaccines more so than trusting the private corporations that that develop and market them. The other factor of that is that um, conspiracies do sometimes exist. Um, they don't. Not every conspiracy that that anyone has ever claimed exists exists. But Watergate was a conspiracy. The president of the United States conspired with foreign powers to help win his reelection. There are people who conspire. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean that every conspiracy claim needs to be taken seriously. And so we need to, to have a rational evaluation where we just don't dismiss everything as, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. But we also don't become so credulous that any apparent conflict of interest or, or possible profit motive means that a company or organization can do no good. So if we look at the conspiracies about big pharma, um, you know, some of the email I've been getting lately has been accusing me of getting paid by Big Pharma to write the book, which I can assure you is not true. If the uh, um, you you would say that though, wouldn't you? I, oh yes, I would. Um, well, I'm I'm still waiting on my check. 
So I think it's it's a matter of of just being cautious and and reasonable in in saying, well, yeah, big pharma does a lot of bad, or pharmaceutical industry does a lot of bad, but they also do some good. And so let's take a, a reasoned approach to what is the bad and what is the good, and then move from there. I, what I don't do in the book is is really defend the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I think I'm actually kind of hard on them. But Just moving on from that a little bit, could you talk about the, I mean, you touched on it in one of your sort of earlier anecdotes about hearing someone talking about climate change and then kind of switching modes and being kind of against vaccination. Could you talk about the anti-vaccine movement and where that sits in a kind of constellation of the misinformation movements we're seeing at the minute? And just sort of historically, I guess they're not new phenomena, but, you know, things like climate denialism or, um, you know, flat earthers. What are the overlaps between anti-vaxxers and these other worldviews? So what I think happens is people don't hate science and and polls seem to, to back that up. Even people who, who express doubts about climate change or about vaccines or about evolution will say they love science. They're pro-science. And, you know, the the issue isn't whether or not they like science. Uh, the issue, and they will object to being called a science denialist. The issue is that they don't understand it and they take positions that are contrary to it. So all of these forms of science denial have certain things in common um, that we can kind of recognize. Uh, one of which is the, the use of cherry picking or selective information. So that's looking at only certain sources of information that back up the claim they want to make. So you can get into an argument with someone who's an anti-vaxxer and they'll find sources that seem to back up what they say. But what they're not doing is doing uh, an overview of the literature on a topic or reading everything there is to know about, about it and then reaching a reasonable conclusion or being up to date with the literature. They're picking and choosing, so they're cherry picking. Another common underlying factor is the use of fake experts. So people who claim to have expertise or are expertise in uh, experts in another area and then will make sort of broad claims about some other area. And we see that a lot right now, especially with COVID-19. People, suddenly everyone's a virologist or epidemiologist. And we see that with climate change. Um, one of the the scientists that climate deniers will claim is on their side is a laser physicist, not a climate scientist. So you really want to look at what what the experts in the field hold as their consensus, um, rather than individual scientists, because you can you can probably find a scientist who will back up your claims outside of their field, no matter what your claim is. Being an expert in one thing doesn't make you an expert. Uh, in everything. I think another sign would be the use of logical fallacies. Uh, that's the use of rhetorical arguments that uh, make logical mistakes. Um, so an example of an, a logical fallacy would be something like uh, an argument from antiquity saying, well, ancient people did this, therefore it's true. Or here's this authority that says X, therefore it's true. Or I'm wearing a lab coat, therefore what I'm saying is true. And in a lot of ways, these are taking advantages of shortcuts that we all make in thinking because we don't have time to always check the credentials of people who are giving us information. We don't have time to to sort through all of the literature on something. So 
will use heuristics or rules of thumb to to generate snap judgments about people, and it sort of takes advantage of that. So a logical fallacy like the argument from authority can be used well. So you every time you write down a citation in an academic paper, you're making an argument from authority. But other times, um, it's not being used well. So we are obligated to sort of be thoughtful about how and when we use which kinds of arguments. One of the last things I want to ask you is about a big practice of manufacturing doubt on issues like, say, for example, the health implications of smoking cigarettes and climate change, where it's quite easy to see who benefits from doubt on those subjects. It's the fossil fuel industry or it's the tobacco industry. I wasn't quite sure who necessarily benefits from the doubt surrounding anti-vaccination information. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit if it's a more diffuse thing or if or if it's just a kind of phenomena of the media at the moment i don't know yeah it's it's in, it's interesting because there are these anti-vaccine groups that and some of them do seem to get some degree of funding um like world mercury project that's changed its name recently just kennedy's group um seems to get funding from somewhere uh, i can't get a good answer for where um so that would be interesting to know but the majority of anti-vaxxers seem to be individuals. And and as you mentioned, this is a phenomenon that goes back 200 years. And I'm not going to, to posit a conspiracy theory of some organization that's been fighting vaccines for 200 years. I think there are small time or smaller time players that benefit. So, for example, there is a large industry selling supplements and alternative health cures that to some degree benefits. So I have a chapter on these sort of treatments that were marketed for vaccination. And there, there has been sort of a cottage industry of people selling what they called cures for autism. So they would market whatever treatment, whether it was hyperbaric oxygen therapy or miracle mineral solution, which is a kind of industrial bleach that people will drink, or craniosacral therapy as a, a cure for autism because they know the answer and and this will this will treat it and they then have their 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 own little treatment center or treatment network where patients will come and pay them sometimes thousands of dollars for these treatments um, and so they they do benefit from these claims financially there are is also a huge industry selling dietary supplements uh, and I know in the US you can walk into a pharmacy or I guess a chemist and see uh, you know shelves and shelves of things that are not actual medical treatments that are marketed like medical treatments. So things like zinc supplements or or airborne or vitamin C supplements that there's dubious benefit to taking or no benefit to taking. Um, they're not regulated in the same way actual drugs are regulated. And so they benefit from people sort of taking these, this list of supplements instead of actual medicine or seeing an actual physician because, you know, that's, that's a place where people will spend money because they see it as a, as a benefit to themselves. I also just want to highlight there something that you do in the book, which is to kind of reflect on the inherent ableism of thinking that there needs to be a cure for autism because I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea when you've written so well about it in the book. The last thing um, I thought I'd ask you is beyond 
voting for you know a politician who you feel is more respecting of scientific consensus what other things can people do to advocate for a political discourse where there's a respect for science and critical engagement with empirical evidence that is still a nut i'm trying to crack so one attempt was the march for science and if if i were to identify something we could have done better I think we should have had a specific list of things we wanted, legislation we wanted passed, changes we wanted made. There was, I'm trying to remember the group that put it out. It was pretty recently a a set of policy recommendations made, I think it was by a a group of of lawyers that were actually quite good um, for adding additional protections to scientists and government and for um, government appointees in science agencies. So right now, and as we've seen, um, a lot of these appointees to science agencies tend are often political appointees. Um, and in this administration, they're people who are opposed to the mission of the agency itself. So their job has been put there to undermine the agency. What this would do would be to add some level of protection to those jobs so that they have actual scientists in those jobs or people who are familiar with the science and are are capable of understanding it and interpreting it. Um, It would be nice to have PhD-level science advisors in the office staff of of our legislative bodies, things of that nature. But I think that some of the best things that people can do is to try to stay up to date on the science, do your reading. Um, These are important social issues that affect a lot of us. So I think even if it doesn't seem to affect our day-to-day lives, and even if I say, well, I'm up to my up to date on my vaccines. Why do I need to, to change anything? I think because this is such a, an important social issue of the day, we need to stay up to date on what the opposition is doing and what anti-vaxxers are doing, what climate denialists are doing. So not only should we you know, stay pretty abreast of the science to whatever degree we can without actually working in the field, we should also try to learn about science denial and try to learn about healthy reasoned skepticism of of claims and how to uh, protect ourselves online and so forth. So being a good advocate for, for science involves, I think, passion and knowledge and and a degree of being willing to, to talk to our friends and family and, and neighbors uh, about these topics as well. That's... Um a great place to finish it I think thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me it's been a really enjoyable conversation thank you thank you for listening to the second episode of the podcast if you'd like to support this podcast please subscribe rate and share this episode I'd like to thank Samantha Doyle who edits and mixes the podcast and Kristen Galliano who provided the soundtrack next week I'll be speaking to Carol Stabile about her book The Broadcast 41 And once again, remember to join a union, support independent journalism and vote on November 3rd.